name is Doug. I'm one of the elders here. I often, I would mention, I've mentioned this in the study before that when Marilyn and I uh, moved to a new city, they were looking for a new church a lot of the times. And uh, it always seems like the church we visit, something weird is going on. Um, and today is probably the weirdest day that you could join CBC. Half of our congregation is gone. Our uh, worship um, team uh, wasn't able to make it today. So we're singing songs from our Zoom days. And, uh, and I'm not the usual speaker. So this is a very special episode. Anyway, um, in fact, the passage that was read today is kind of tangentially related to the sermon that I'm given because I, <laughs> I wrote it uh, yesterday. This one. Um, all right. All right. Um, so, but, so when, I, when I was in my 20s, um, my first real job out of grad school involved a lot of computer coding. Um, I was a manager in what was called a digital uh, humanities center at the University of Maryland where we built tools for humanities re researchers who were studying Shakespeare and South African history and Percy Shelley. Um, and we were a tiny, tiny little team. This was back in the early 2000s. Um, and uh, so uh, and a lot of what we were, we were doing was software development, but also there was a lot of grant writing, a lot of working with scholars, that sort of thing. So during the day, I would do the management of the center. I would talk to the scholars who uh, had projects. But then we still had to do the software development, and I was also the senior software developer, so I would have to write a lot of the code at night. Um, and as midnight approached, I wouldn't necessarily feel all that tired, um, but around that time, I would force myself to go to bed uh, because I knew I had to get up in the morning, but my mind was still really active, and sometimes I would actually have to get up and continue working a little bit just because I, I couldn't get to sleep. And of course, once I finally did get to sleep, I strongly resented my alarm uh, a few hours later. <laughs> Um, because the, the sleep that seemed so impossible to achieve just, um, you know, at midnight at like six in the morning suddenly seemed like all I wanted to do. Um, and as I hit the, uh, the snooze button the second time, I would sometimes think to myself, uh, sort of ironically, an object in motion tends to stay in motion and an object at rest tends to stay at rest. To the slide, yeah. Um, and so Newton's, uh, law of inertia, first law of motion, observes that shifting between states of motion requires force. Uh, so uh, shifting between rest and motion requires force. If a moving object is going to slow down, it needs a force uh, to slow it down. Often that's friction or air resistance or whatever. It, it's as uh, hard to stop a moving object as it is to start it. But we are created to need rest. The story of, um, of creation in Genesis sets up a poetic rhythm of evening and morning capping off each day with, um, uh, the, where the evening and morning caps off each day, so there's separation, and there's the seventh day of rest. As God's people, the sons and daughters of Israel, are separated from the Egyptians who forced them to work as slaves, and God introduces the Sabbath day as an enforced day of rest. God knew that force, that is a command, was required to change the inertia of a community of slaves who never stopped working, to a community of free people who could rest. But as I was trying to think through this sermon, I was trying to imagine what it means to rest. And, and this is actually a question that has concerned a lot of Old Testament and New Testament scholars over the last 4,000, 5,000 years. It became such, um, such a question to religious scholars that uh, rules about the Sabbath began to accrete soon after the command was originally given. There was a legal distance that limited the number of steps one could walk on the Sabbath. And in fact, in Acts 1 in the New Testament, we're told that after the ascension of Jesus, the disciples walked back a Sabbath day's journey. 
So even at that time, they were still counting the steps. Um, today, uh, and actually you can see the next slide, in um, Orthodox uh, Jewish communities, there are different interpretations of what can be done on the Sabbath and whether electricity can be used and in what way, which leads, if you've been in a hospital or in a building in Manhattan, there's often a Sabbath elevator that stops at every uh, floor so you, you don't have to push the button. Um, in the 19th and 20th centuries, many evangelical Christians also imposed similar restrictions on what could be done on Sunday. I remember when I was in youth group as a teenager, um, our youth leaders would always tell us that as we were getting our first jobs, we shouldn't sign up for the Sunday schedule because that was the Sabbath and we should observe it. Um, and it was kind of connected and around that time, there was a, a revival of this 19th century, late 19th century novel, In His Steps, that popularized the phrase, what would Jesus do? And actually, the guy's son or grandson, I think, had written a kind of revision of it called What Would Jesus Do? that inspired the bracelets and all that in the, in the late 90s. Um, in that book, um, uh, one of the characters is a newspaper editor who struggles with whether he should publish a Sunday edition and so finally cancels his Sunday edition. Uh, and even today, the fast food chain Chick-fil-A famously remains closed on Sunday uh, out of observance of what they see as the Sabbath. In the New Testament, though, the Sabbath uh, requirements get a little bit fuzzier. Um, so Jesus is regularly, we can go to the next, um, is uh, regularly accused of violating the Sabbath for healing and allowing his disciples to pick grain and eat it. Um, but he tells his accusers the Sabbath was not made for man. Oh, sorry, the Sabbath was made for man uh, and not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus also asserts that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Therefore, he's asserting that he's the one who gets to make the rules about what can be done on the Sabbath or not, and that the first century uh, rabbinical observations and, and rules were, were wrong. Later in Matthew, he says it's lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath when he heals a person on the holy day. Paul goes actually even a little bit further in his letter to the Colossians. See that slide so, um, so Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are the shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And then later in that same passage, um, um, Paul says these rules, which include the Sabbath day, um, which have to do with the things that uh, have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use. They're based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any real value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, some Christians have uh, also noted that uh, the nine other uh, nine of the other ten commandments are all repeated or even expanded in some way in the New Testament. The, common, the command to honor the Sabbath is, if anything, somewhat softened. But if we remember back last year when we were studying the book of Hebrews, um, uh, when Dick was preaching through that, that book, the author tells the church that uh, God's Sabbath, Sabbath rest, his Sabbath rest now extends beyond a single day that has been established since God concluded his, uh, his work and rested on the seventh day of creation. Hebrews 4 says, and yet his works have finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And then there's a bit later, he says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish 
by following their example of disobedience. So in, that, in the context, if you remember from the book of Hebrews, Paul is setting up an argument against trying to win salvation by good works and observance of the law and that sort of thing. But he, not Paul, the author of, maybe Paul, the author of Hebrews, um, but he, uh, he does uh, point out that there is this rest that God established on the seventh day of creation, and it's seen as something like the salvation, that, or it is part of the salvation that God calls us to. So what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to honor the Sabbath uh, by you know, resting on it, whether it's a Saturday or a Sunday? As I was thinking about this, I wonder if the Sabbath is sort of a, a different kind of command than the other nine commandments. The first three, um, about avoiding adultery and worshiping the Lord your God alone, are part of the command that Jesus says, uh, sums up all the other commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the final six, about avoiding murder, theft, and adultery, are about loving your neighbor as yourself. The fourth commandment sort of enables both by assuring that we're able to do the work that we need to do. In the days since COVID, I've noticed, and maybe you have too, a lot of professional emails begin and end with a kind of performance of empathy. Um, hope you're well, stay safe, hoping you're get, getting through all of this. And Gmail actually now will auto-suggest some of these helpful um, little niceties. Um, and sometimes these messages are actually offered sincerely. I've seen work emails in which new post-pandemic rules and protocols are outlined, and they often end with the directive to take some time for yourself and make sure that you're taking time to rest, because it's a difficult time that we're all getting through. Now, these directives to take some time for rest um, don't come with metrics for success. No end-of-the-year evaluation is going to check in on how well you took time to rest. Um, but I also do believe that the directive is meant sincerely. And we need to be reminded that sometimes there is a temptation to overwork and that we work more efficiently when we're rested. And some of us actually need a command to do this. A body in motion tends to stay in both motion unless an unbalanced force acts upon it. The fourth commandment is this unbalanced force. So how do we enter God's rest and honor this commandment? What is rest? Should we spend our Sabbaths lying on the couch watching TV or playing video games? Um, or is it spending a lot of time in prayer and Bible reading? I, I think, thinking of Paul's uh, directive in Colossians, that it's dangerous to try to set any hard and fast rules here because the temptation is so strong to take a general principle that might be good for one person and apply it to a whole bunch of other people and to make a hard and fast set of legal do's and don'ts which Paul tells us has no real value in restraining sensual indulgence or making us better people. But let's think for a minute about what rest does and move from there. So I, I did a little bit of like, very minimal research into what uh, scientists right now understand about sleep. Um, we don't really understand why it is that we sleep. But we, we do understand, or it seems we do know that during the process of sleep, our bodies and minds repair themselves which they couldn't do when they were, were awake. So the brain um, moves from trying to process information to flushing toxins and making connections among things that it encountered during the day. So a lot of times if you've studied something right before you go to bed and then wake up, sometimes your mind might have memorized it better or connected it better. Muscles grow and repair. It, it seems that while our bodies are working, while we're awake, they're not as efficient as cleaning and repairing themselves. So God's rest allows us as individuals and as communities time to clean and repair ourselves. 
in particular, if we look at the way that Sabbath is described in the Old Testament and to some extent in the New Testament, it seems to be a time to reset and repair economic lives. Um, so in particular, uh, yeah, so, so rest in the Old Testament pauses the pursuit and the generation of wealth. We as humans are, um, we are motivated to try to gather as much as we can for our own use. Most of us are motivated to do our jobs in order to get more money or to enhance our reputation or maybe even just to gain and gather more understanding and knowledge in our own fields. And within certain boundaries, God's law doesn't forbid and even actually encourage us, encourages us to do this work of planting and harvesting. But God who created the world also knows that some will enjoy greater fortune and larger harvests than others. And the Sabbath ensures that those who have been less fortunate are not exploited by those who have been more fortunate. And this happens in at least three ways. So the Sabbath ensures that the work I find fulfilling and life-giving does not exhaust others who are affected by my, by my activity. So no one works entirely alone. Most of us who are tempted to work longer hours or seven days a week do so because in some way we find the work we're doing rewarding or even just the fruits of that work rewarding. Most workers are in their jobs though, or many workers are in their jobs, just because they need to eat or they need to pay the bills. And the job that they have is the one they've been lucky enough to find. Now, often those of us whose work we find more rewarding or who are profiting more from our work um, depend on the less personally satisfying or less profitable work of others. And when the law was first given to the Israelites, this is one of the explicit reasons why the Sabbath is given in Exodus. Next slide. Uh, so in Exodus 23, where uh, the people are told, six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. God cares about labor, both human and non-human, that supports the work of the more fortunate, and he demands they be given rest. So where I work now, I often have the opportunity to plan um, events or programs that I find really exciting. I get to bring in artists whose work I've admired all my life, and talk with them in front of audiences who are as excited as I am about being there. It took me a little while to realize, though, that every event that I plan uh, requires um, support from people who I might never meet with as I plan the event. There are security staff and facility staff and technical teams who are responsible for lighting and sound, and all of those people need to stay late when I do an event. Now, they're, you know, of course, they're being paid to do that, but if there isn't enough notice or if there's um, a staff illness or vacations that means that that team is really small, sometimes, and the team is small to begin with, um, sometimes my event means that it's one of seven nights in a row that someone needs to come in and work late. And it can be exhausting for these people um, who may not have any interest in the event that I'm putting on. So for this reason, a former colleague uh, who recently retired had previously unilaterally, unilaterally decreed that there would never be an event in August. A lot of us resented this uh, decision at the time and thought it was kind of silly, um, but in recent years I've seen that there's actually some wisdom to that, that idea. And even if you're not in a position at work where your passions can exhaust others, you may discover that you are uh, in such a position in your family or even here at church. As a body, we should be sensitive to how the expression of our gifts affect others in the congregation. Now, I'm sure Dick will be talking about gifts and how they must be used to edify the body and not the individual 
later as we continue in the series on 1 Corinthians. But there's a danger that even the good and maybe even supernatural abilities that God gives us as individuals um, can exhaust others in the congregation or in some ways not edify them. And so at times we may be called to rest these gifts even when we are most restless to use them. I, I actually don't have a specific example here, uh, so don't try to guess at what I might be thinking about, but um, as a passionate and energetic individual, I'm well aware that this is much more of a risk, um, this is as much a risk on Sunday for me as it is on Monday through Saturday. Now, of course, um, a day of rest doesn't give us permission to exploit those less fortunate on the other days of the week either. And uh, we actually see how God feels about that in uh, a couple of, uh, of the prophets. So in Amos 8, if you go to the next um, slide, uh, God says to Amos, I wouldn't go back to the blank slide. Yeah, so in, in Amos 8, um, God says to Amos, uh, he, he shows him a vision of a basket of fruit. And he says, what do you see, Amos? A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. And then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new fat moon festival be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings of the wheat. The Sabbath is meant to be a break from honest labor, not an enforced pause in dishonest gain and greed. Amos tells us that God will silence the worship on the Sabbath if this is in the mind of the worshipers. And the prophet Isaiah further reports on how God views this weekly piety. In the first, um, in the first chapter of the book of Isaiah, um, God says, stop bringing your meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They become a burden to me and I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. So this, this suggests the second reason for the Sabbath. Slide. The Sabbath is a time to do the good work of restoration that we can't do when we're working our own hands. Jesus told the Pharisees that it is permitted to do good on the Sabbath. And we need to be careful, of course, that our good works on the Sabbath don't violate the previous point about forcing less enthusiastic collaborators to labor along with our good works, but um, it may be that the Sabbath is a time that we can find ways to, in the words of Isaiah, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. And of course, this, this can't be just a one-day-a-week activity, but it may be that the Sabbath time of rest gives us time to think about and prepare ways we can do this work throughout the rest of the week and throughout all of our lives. Sometimes, also, I think the good work of the Sabbath is just getting out of the way. 
In the law of Moses, in addition to the Sabbath day, there was also a Sabbath year. So in, the, in Exodus, the people are instructed to rest not only once a week, but also once every seven years. So uh, in Exodus, we see on the screen, um, for six years you are to sow your fields and harvest your crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among you and your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what's left. Do the same with your vineyards and your olive groves. Pausing one's own work of wealth making allows those without basic capital like land a moment to meet their basic needs and maybe even get a little bit of a head. One of the reasons uh, throughout my life, I've, uh, at least my career, I've been uh, reluctant to take vacations at certain points is that the fear is because of the fear that during my absence, the inevitable, inevitable politics of the workplace may shift in such a way that I won't be able to manage if I'm not there. And I've certainly seen this happen. But this passage is a reminder that if we trust that God is in control, it may sometimes be that this shift is actually a good thing. If our presence on the land prevents others from meeting their basic needs, it might be a good idea to step back. This is one of the reasons why organizations often employ term limits, um, like for instance on our elder boards and MSP boards. Enforced rest not only allows a leader a moment to take some time off without feeling bad about it, but it also allows the congregation, the con configuration of the group to change. Sometimes you probably have experienced this particular arrangements of individuals create a kind of group personality that can be very hard to alter until one or two people leave. Regular enforced rests allow groups to reset and regroup. And I know that this, this can be terrifying, but I wonder if it's part of what Jesus meant when he said that we must lose our souls, which is the word, Greek word suke, which the psychologists, uh, which the psychologists give the word psyche. We must lose that psyche in order to find it. We must be willing to crucify all we consider part of our identity to leave our fields and let them be overrun by those we might consider scavengers. In God's mercy, we do this actually by taking time to rest and restore ourselves and not worry about the fields we've left fallow. So this leads to the third and possibly the scariest reason for rest. The Sabbath is a way of resetting the economy and eliminating economic disparity. So the word Sabbath first appears in the Bible in Exodus 16 after God's provision of manna, uh, the miraculous bread that formed on the ground like dew when the Israelites were wandering through the desert. The manna didn't appear on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day, making it impossible for the Israelites to work by gathering on that day. And we're told that each person's labor in gathering the manna was sufficient for their need, even though they gathered different amounts. Slide. Oh yeah, good, there we go. Um, the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little, and when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had as much as they needed. In uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul, yeah, Paul suggests to the church that in the church, the same can happen if we share our resources. He writes to the church, last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your needs. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others may be relieved while you are 
relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there may be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, and here is where he quotes the Exodus passage, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. And interestingly, the mechanism that Paul introduced for gathering in 1 Corinthians was based on a Sabbath day collection. He wrote to the same church, now about the collection for the Lord's people, this is in 1 Corinthians, we'll get to this a little bit later in Vic's series, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Incidentally, this is the only time that the um, first day of the week is noted as a time of the church's gathering. In Acts, they gather every day. Um, so this is sort of where we might get that idea of Sunday as the, the um, time that the church gathers. Um, uh, yeah, so the Sabbath seems to have been a time, or at least this first Sunday of uh, the first day of the week, seems to have been a time of sort of pooling tips at the restaurant to make sure that everything works out equally. The Sabbath laws also provided not only for the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year, but for a once-in-a-lifetime equalizer for the 50-year jubilee. In Leviticus 25, God tells the people, count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that seven Sabbaths amount to the period of 49 years. Uh, then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the Day of Atonement. Sound the trumpet throughout the land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or the harvest beyond tended, or harvest beyond tended vines. For it is jubilee and it is for, uh, to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. And it goes on to explain that in, that year, in the year of jubilee, slaves will be freed, Ancestral lands that have been sold will be returned to their original owners. Essentially, all the misfortunes of the previous generation will be erased for the next. The idea is that the portion of the land that was given to each of the tribes at the beginning of the founding of the nation of Israel was equitable, but that a combination of hard work and good fortune would inevitably lead to some acquiring land from other tribes and some losing everything and going into debt. And while the laws enforcing justice and mercy should prevent exploitation in general, the Jubilee set as a, served as a reset button to ensure that generational wealth did not mean that people that were born, ensured that uh, people were not born into the kind of poverty their family could not escape. Thomas Jefferson actually considered this idea at the founding of our nation in a letter to James Madison. Um, it's not actually the real Madison and Jefferson. No. Um, it's Hamilton, if you know. Um, so, uh, no, uh, no society can make a perpetual constitution, uh, uh, Jefferson says, or even a perpetual law. The earth always belongs to the living generation. Every constitution, then, and every law naturally expires at the end of 19 years. If it is to be enforced longer, it's an act of force and not of right. So Jefferson actually argued that the constitution itself should expire once a generation, which he figured at about 20 years. Of course, he didn't convince anyone but his idea is part of the reason that patents expire every 20 years. The economic success of one generation in the law of Moses and in Jefferson's ideas should not unduly privilege the, um, the next generation. So what can we as Christians do about this? Well, as citizens in a democracy, we may wish to consider the ways in which we support policies that 
help limit economic disparity based on the actions of previous generations. And how this is best done is a more complicated question than I can hope to address in a sermon, but we might, as a church, want to think through how we perceive our own legacy. As we age, are we most, mostly concerned about the financial security of our own children, and our children's children, or are we working towards the kind of community equity within the body of Christ that Paul lays out? As the church's body, are we working to ensure that the, uh, as the church body, are we working to ensure that the passions, theologies, and practices of this body of Christ and believers are passed down and preserved for the next generation? Or are we willing to let God press the reset button and have only the fundamental boundaries of the kingdom remain? These are hard questions. An object in motion tends to stay in motion. We require an external, unopposed force to change speed and direction. I suppose the question is, are we willing to ask God to supply that force? And are we willing not?